1: uh, my introduction to the book falling apart at the seams, um Which will tell you, I guess, what the book is about, which is why we're all here Um, and it starts with a lot of information that you probably know if you're here, but um, maybe not Rookie is an online magazine made by and for teenagers and their cohorts of any age I founded it in 2011 when I was a sophomore in high school because I couldn't find a teen magazine that respected its readers' intelligence and had actual teens writing for it. In the time since, rookie readers have made themselves known through our online community, at live events, uh, and by starting their own zines, blogs, bands, clubs, and other manifestations of their creativity and brilliance. We'd always hope to commemorate the magic all of our contributors had made for RookieMag.com. So, we published four anthologies, one for each year of high school, known as the Rookie Yearbooks. But we wanted to keep going, and we wanted to commission and publish new work that wouldn't live anywhere else, not even on the internet. We wanted to focus on a single subject, rather than a period of time, and we wanted to see the variety of ways in which rookie writers and artists, rookie heroes we dreamed of working with, and rookie readers who are on their way to becoming all of the above, would respond to the same prompt. We wanted a subject that would be totes, chill, um, v simple, and easy to understand. So we went with love. Behold, the next iteration of Rookie in Print featuring all new essays, comics, and poetry by teens of all ages. Initially, I thought we'd commission pieces to check the box for every possible manifestation of this mysterious emotion. Crushes, unrequited love, long term, short lived, long distance, hookups, breakups, etc. Maybe we'd sequence them according to the timeline of a stereotypical relationship from attraction to union to separation. It's a bleak outlook. Um, (laughs) The verdict would be in, finally, the meaning of love captured in these pages. But, like anything worth doing or feeling, love is impossible to explain. Like anything in real life and not a book or movie or love story by Taylor Swift or love story by Mariah Carey or love story parentheses you and me by Randy Newman. (laughs) Love doesn't always unfold according to a narrative structure. Plus, ending the book with a bunch of breakups felt bleak. What about the next part, where you find out how great it is to be alone? And the part after that, where you meet someone else and create something new with them? Or where you choose to not be in a romantic relationship? Or to casually date? Or have sex with whomever you want? Also, what about the love that persists all around us regardless of what we do or do not have going on romantically? The love you feel when working on something that really lights you up? Or taking in a piece of art that seems to read your mind? or discovering a really good book, cough, fart? (laughs) Um, The people who make your life feel so full that the one might actually be a multi-headed mutant? What about those days where you're like, I can't believe that I'm not only not depressed out of my mind, but that I also actually feel in love with the world around me? Or when you're like, whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrival skate at Heathrow Airport you know where this is going general opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed but i don't see that if you look for it i've got a sneaky feeling that you'll find that love actually is all around so that was hugh grant's monologue from the beginning of love actually um but sometimes trying to write about love makes you sound like that and honestly the thesis of that movie however cheesy is not wrong love is all around but its holding place is not always another person sometimes you find the best companion in yourself or the fun of worshiping a teen idol or the challenge of trying to understand love in its various forms just that attempt the curiosity that's how i felt working on this book and coming to its end i feel pretty satisfied with the idea that love is a force that takes different forms that can be more present in the feeling of writing or in memories or fantasies in a conversation with an internet friend or in the way your dog waits for you to come home. So I am proposing a sequel to Love Actually called Love Actually No But Actually, <laughs> where everyone plays someone from rookie on love. Emma Thompson as Florence Welch's songwriting process, page one fifty five, <laughs> Bill Nye as the beauty standards. Alessia Cara calls into question, page 175. Uh, Chiw- Egio 4 as Emma Straub's favorite books. Kiera Knightley as the lion in Edgar Carrot's short story. Colin Firth as Mitski Miyawaki's musical career. Liam Neeson as Marlo Thomas's acting coach. These are all pieces of the book um, with page numbers. Laura Linney. Uh, as Montgomery Clift in Hilton Als's tribute to the screen icon, January Jones as the love letters that taught Janet Mock she was a writer, Alan Rickman as the G-chat about YA romance between John Green and Rainbow Rowell, Rowan Atkinson as Gaboré Sidibe's self-described hoe phase. I mean, what a cast. No wonder it's a classic. <laughs> Prepare to be blown away by the poetry by rookie readers, interviews and conversations, how to's and direct advice, lyrical essays and timelines, and more questions than answers. I remain bowled over by every contribution, the sheer creativity and range of these interpretations of the most written about subject ever. Of course though, that's what you get when you're just like, I love your writing. Will you write about something that you love too? And if anyone wants to produce a super convoluted sequel to a beloved rom-com Christmas movie and obscure the money-making faces of at least 10 international movie stars with giant objects as costumes, as in a school play, please get in touch. (laughs)
0: Love,
1: I say it in every editor's letter, but now I extra mean it, Mm -hmm. Um, So, one of the Pieces in this book is by Collier Meyerson, and she's here to read it for you now. Hello,
2: everybody. I see all my friends peppered through this audience while they are here. Uh, This uh, piece is about my ex-boyfriend. Um, and my current boyfriend has seen me read it four
0: times.
2: (laughs) Um, It's called Past Exposure, The Look of Love. There's an old black and white photo of the 20th century feminist writer and thinker Simone de Beauvoir doing her hair in a Chicago bathroom. She's around 40. Her ass is plump, a few sexy dimples ride down the back of her upper thigh. Her left leg stands sturdily out in front, and she's leaning a bit on her right hip. All she's got on are a pair of heels. It's easy to imagine how... It's easy to imagine this was how Simone de Beauvoir always did her hair, no matter who was watching. But it also seems like she liked it when somebody did watch. I know the photo was taken during her fair with the writer, Nelson Algren. It's always struck me as a lover's photo, sexily surreptitious, the kind of candid snapped in a moment of pure ecstatic longing, when your lover is doing something terribly normal, their hair, and it takes your breath away. This photo guarantees Algren's love because no one can take a photo like this and not be in love. And I know from reading de Beauvoir's Dubois, D- 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 love letters to Algren that their relationship didn't last. It's the kind of picture you find in a drawer beneath a bunch of other shit a while after you've ended a relationship. Tears unvoluntarily collecting in your eyes and vomit in your throat. A photo you study wishing for the time before that massive love was corrupted. I first saw the photograph on Tumblr <laughs> years ago and I assumed Algren took it. In fact, it was a photographer and friend of Algren's, Art Shea. The photo wasn't The deeply erotic and intimate portrait of a woman by the man who loves her, but instead, the deeply erotic portrait of a woman performing intimacy. Equally as he did, but different, for show, for others' consumption. Like Instagram. (laughs) I have some photos, like the one of Simone de Beauvoir. Physical pictures of a boyfriend during the first half of my twenties. In one, he's sitting shirtless on our balcony in Chicago, Looking at me, his mouth slightly agape, as if he were about to whisper, I love you. My memory is that's exactly what he said. I love you, Collier. I keep them all in a blue folder with old love letters and other loose photos from my past, memories that feel inappropriate to collect in a photo album but impossible to throw away. Lovers' photos were often private then, unless, of course, they were art made to be consumed, like the one of De Beauvoir. And then culture shifted. In my next relationship, I didn't use a Polaroid or disposable camera. Instead, I started to snap my most intimate romantic moments on Instagram. All of the photos I took of my next boyfriend, I'll call him Eli, were impulsive. A frivolous record of intimacy I rarely revisited because I never imagined the relationship would end. But it did. And there's no blue folder to keep him in. I wasn't an artist like Shay, but I was inducted into a new phenomenon with old roots, performing my love. In the first few weeks we started dating, Eli sent flowers to my job and desserts over to the table at a restaurant he knew I was at with friends. Since we were long distance, we spent hours on FaceTime in those first months. Once or twice we fell asleep, still on the phone, at dawn. He texted me article links, demanding my opinion. And he'd call me on the phone to excoriate anyone who disagreed with something I'd written or said. As an outspoken critic of Israel, I'd call him at least once a week and sensed at the country's latest act of provocation against Palestinians. He called me the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. Sometimes he'd say it ten times a day. And I'd responded by texting him a blurry picture of funny, some funny bumper sticker I saw on the road because he loved silly bumper stickers. I'd never been swept away, swept off my feet quite like it. He was intoxicating. I was all he thought about. I could be myself. And he worshipped me, A first. I wanted my universe to know I loved. But something else, too, nagged at me. I wanted the universe to know I was loved. The first photo I took of Eli was on one of his visits. He had a, boy, a, he had a boyish aversion to greens. The photo is a split screen. A before and after of him eating the eggs and kale I'd made for us. I remember how tickled I was by his true, uncontrolled laugh. A couple of months later, we went on a road trip through California, and he documented the whole thing on Instagram. Smitten, said the the one he took on the beach after we'd run for our lives to catch the sunset. I look out of breath, and my hair was wild from the wind. But it's one of those unmistakable lovers' photos. I wasn't even thinking about the camera. All I cared was what was, just, was what was just beyond it. Whenever I looked at engagement and wedding photos on Facebook, I felt that they felt different from Instagram photos. Professional photos were put on, I thought. Staged love to show the grandkids. The Instagram photos I took of Eli felt more intimate, something that the grandkids would swipe through one night when I restored that clunky old app after reminiscing about how we used to revolve our lives around it. But on second thought, my Instagram photos weren't so different in their purpose. They too were expressions to my universe that I was desired. Trips, meals, weddings, quiet nights at home were all punctuated by Eli's love for me. And that was real, that was my life. And if Instagram is a curated documentation of both the mundane and the celebratory moments of life, then that was a true reflection. But I also had the feeling that showing the world I was in love gave me the sense of purpose I hadn't had while I was single. The mounting likes made me, a woman who isn't generally interested in being defined by men, feel more affirmed. At 4am, a a year and three months after Eli and I broke up, I opened Instagram and began scrolling through all the photos of us when we were together. I began looking at the photos tagged as him, the ones I took of him, and the ones someone else took of us. I began to cry at the one I posted of us under a giant waterfall in upstate New York. I wore a crimson vintage one-piece and Eli was naked. I had used an app to cover his dick and my caption read, He's so shy, that sweet little boy who caught my eye. That weekend away was the first trip we took with my friends. I had been nervous that they wouldn't like one another, but they did and I fell more in love with him for it. After I looked at all the photos tagged of him, I moved on to the photos tagged of me. I liked the one of our friend Jacob took of us. Eli in his shiny satin Celtics jacket, crouched over me, biting my neck. Underneath him I was laughing, my half-hot PBR like a prop to my right. It had been a month since I stopped responding to Eli's texts and phone calls. I unfollowed him on Instagram after he posted a photo with his new girlfriend. I told myself I'd stop looking at him altogether on Instagram. Now that he had a girlfriend, I didn't need to obsessively check his new followers to see which new women he was following or who might be commenting on his photos. I didn't need to wonder. But I was awake at 4 a.m. and already in despair. I wanted more agony, so much more. My heart an unstoppable, grotesque, malevolent monster. By 5 a.m., I was studying the photos I'd posted of myself since becoming single. Sometimes I looked happy, like when I was singing along to Rihanna, Arms Raised and Zola's Convertible and Joshua Tree. But weren't a lot of them also performances of happiness, too? Instagram is a hellscape.
0: <laughs>
2: I deleted the app and cried until the sun came up, and then I closed my eyes and fell asleep. I downloaded it again. For real. Up next is uh, Dylan Tupper Rupert.
3: <laughs>
4: thank you, Collier, and thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm really excited to be here. I feel very at home uh, in rooms full of rookies and like cool rookie dads. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to read a piece that is on the website. That's something I wrote last year. It's kind of just like a multi-part despair fest, but there was one thing about love in there. So I was like, I'll read that. Um, It is a piece called Everything Changes All The Time. And the sub-headline is There Can Be Relief That Comes With Your Whole Reality Shifting. So this is part of that piece that talks about Um, just like the regular mundane existential dread that we all come to arrive at at some point in our teenage years or early 20s. This one is about how the things you love now are not your permanent saviors. So strap in. (laughs) (laughs) Moving to California saved my life. Becoming a runner saved my life. This band, I love them. Like You know they saved my life, right? Like They totally saved my life when I was 13. When I've said things like this and met them, there was no actual life at stake. But there were times these claims felt very true, at least in regard to resisting some psychic death. These so-called lifesavers really are markers in my timeline of something that moved in just when I needed it. They were gestures of right place, right time, righteousness that helped me out from going through an unraveling or a depression or an emotional loss. I have love for the things that have saved me in moments of shiftiness and confusion when I needed a guide and a marker. That's why the grief feels like a breakup when you move on from them. It hurts to learn that just because something saved you once doesn't mean it's capable or destined to save it forever. And by saving, I mean it either gave you a reason to survive in a hard moment or a reason to thrive in an easier one. Sometimes you revisit that place, or that album, or that religion, or whatever it was, and realize that it's not the appropriate survival to a freer moment anymore. It no longer fits. It might be comforting to know that it's still there, but the conditions have changed, and you need new apparatuses. Is there anything more heart-wrenching than a breakup with a thing that you love? Not a person, but a passion, a place. Something that was once so important to you, but no longer holds the same relevance to the things you're going through or just doesn't seem to align with the person you've become since discovering it. Your needs are different now, and it doesn't work the same way. That's disorienting, that fizzling out of die-hard appreciation for something that has given you so much when it was most needed. You're not crazy for feeling like your favorite book betrayed you when the themes no longer suit your philosophies, or feeling like the place you moved to and were so happy in now wants to file for divorce. I've been brokenhearted by the phasing out of my passions as I was figuring out that they would never contain the full curriculum of surviving all of life. That a work of art that I worshipped, or a sport I loved to play where I found metaphors for self-discovery, or a social group where I tumbled upon the most exciting ways to live up until that point, were not going to carry me all the way through. They were just moments, and they no longer suited me. Their techniques for breathing life into emotional areas in which I felt a little dead just don't work anymore. This is basically the kill-your-idols realization of the thing-sphere. When I approach a new, intense life realization, it often feels like a tiny death in my own personal universe. But this one can feel like a dozen worlds imploding in once. What do we do to survive this? We gotta break it down. Was it that thing really? Was it the book? That youth group? That sports team or that band? Or was it your ability to discover them in the first place? and to find what you needed most from what it could offer you. Was it the resourcefulness of your scrappy soul to discover a minor redemption inside something you could love? That salvation feeling is all due to your ability to discover and find what you needed, whatever that was. It's important to let what these discoveries are evolve. It's just as important to realize that it wasn't the thing that saved your life! Exclamation point! It was what you found in it, what spoke to you through it, that did the life-affirming heavy lifting here. That means that things are ephemeral, no matter how hard you try to preserve them. Passions will come and go and die and decompose and evaporate into irrelevance, which, okay, ouch. But it means that you have it within you to go through life and uncover gifts, like Easter eggs set out for you in the art and activities and experiences that you choose to engage with throughout life. The hardest round is the first round when you notice your tastes, and what you need out of that kind of adoration change for the first time. You're gonna grow up, and just like your relationships to people, you need to let go of some old friends and find new ones as you change too. That's the end of that chapter. Thank you. (laughs) Getting sorted. Marie Lodi is up next. Woo!
5: Hello there. Just gonna unwind this for you. Because oh. <laughs> I'm gonna do a little presentation. I'm Marie and I'm going to read a little vintage piece from the summer of 2013 when I fell in love with a boy. This is a ghost story. It's yours, and it's mine, and it's about all the ghosts we have ever loved. I want the next few months of my life to be like an 80s comedy, Comedy, I proclaimed, surfing on a van like Teen Wolf, overdosing on Otter Pops, and making out with someone who ends up being a ghost. This was an actual tweet.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> it was sudden jest, but sometimes words are spells, and then those spells come true. And I was always really good at conjuring things in a witchy way. I'd watch him walk the block or so from his place to mine. His face was bathed in shadows, but I can make out his leather jacket in silhouette. It reminded me of dreams I had when I was young. We'd stay up all night talking about conspiracies and past lives and psychic dreams, and the songs we loved and the people we hated and hollyweird, and urban legends from our hometowns. He had the kind of name reserved for bad boys that girl groups like the Shangri-Las always sang about. He kissed me like in the movies, and then he was gone, literally gone out of this city, this state, this country. I didn't wash my sheets for weeks. They held the scent of his skin, his hair, his clothes, like ghosts on my pillows. The realist in me says, everyone is ephemera, everyone becomes a ghost. The romantic in me cries for a month straight, lamenting, when, was he even real? To contact a ghost, you can perform a seance, use odd forms of communication, Twitter, Facebook, G-chat, like a Ouija board. Does anyone use street chat anymore? (laughs) Are you there? Show me a sign. To get rid of ghosts, you can perform an exorcism. Destroy any possessions the dead left behind. Burn sage. Don't speak their name. Don't you ever speak their name. They say 3am is when the veil between this world and theirs is the thinnest the most vulnerable. Sometimes I'd suddenly awake, scared to, look, scared to look at the clock, but I didn't have to look because I already knew. Three o'clock, and then came the silence, the scariest sound of them all. I understood when Hemingway said, it is awfully easy to be hard-boiled about everything in the daytime, but at night it is another thing. But at night it is another thing. Nighttime is when every ghost I have ever loved visits me the most. I want to ask if any of them will stick around longer, but I always stop myself before I do. I guess I've been haunted by a lot of ghosts. I wonder if I'm a ghost to someone too. Spoiler alert, we got married last year. (laughs) Next up is
0: Danielle Henderson. Hi guys. Okay, three quick things before I read this piece. One, I'm also going to stand because I'm wearing old baby pants, so one false move and they'll be down by my crotch. Two, there's a cat upstairs who's really cute, so we're like, I'm gonna be kind of psychically unavailable while we complete our mind meld while I'm reading this. And uh, the third thing is that I'm gonna read something about my lack of interest in skincare, And just to double down on that, I drew a little zip for you. (laughs) See you in the front row, just special. Okay, this is something I wrote called You First. There is a feeling that you've learned to ignore. It's the one that starts as a dull throb in the deepest part of your body, stretching symphonic tendrils of no towards your heart, often subsiding into a disappointing chorus of who cares by the time it gets there. The feeling hits hardest when you're trying to put yourself first. You don't want to go to the movies tonight, but you're afraid to hurt your friend's feelings if you say no. You always seem to do what your partner wants to do on a Friday night, but isn't that the way you show love? Several times a day, in the span of approximately 10 seconds, from the first electric rumblings to the spectacular fizzle, You accomplish something that took our ancestors centuries to develop. You push forward and ignore your instinct to love yourself first. Most people will confidently tell you to love yourself without giving you any firm directions on how to actually do it. The concept of self-love has been whittled down to self-care, and self-care has been reduced to a buzzword. It's an opportunity to sell face masks and fancy moisturizers more than it is an invitation to develop any sort of emotional intelligence. Nothing is wrong with a pedicure, but a smooth foot means fuck all if you haven't learned how to love yourself from within. <laughs> Learning how to say no means you have to learn how to set boundaries, and it's probably the most important part of self-care, and something most people never quite manage to learn. Part of the problem is that setting boundaries sounds harsh, like you're throwing up a brick wall between yourself and the world but the dictionary definition of emotional intelligence is all about your capacity to control and express your emotions. The boundary-making part of your emotional intelligence is really a matter of figuring out what you want before actively engaging with somebody else's idea of a good time. I really learned how to say no as an act of boundary-setting self-care in high school. The teenage life can be a highly regulated one, thanks to parents, teachers, and after-school jobs. Since I only had about five hours a week to myself, I grew to be fiercely protective of my time. No, I absolutely did not want to go to the football game. I wanted to sit home and watch Kids in the Hall episodes that I taped that were bound to be way more entertaining than the watching guys who threatened to be all week throw themselves around the field. Why would I want to go to a party and stand around awkwardly while everyone else drank themselves into a stupor when I could drag my sewing machine to the kitchen table and try out that new French theme I read about at the library. Admittedly, I only knew that these things were not fun for me because I'd already tried them in the past. Developing a strong sense of self involves taking risks or trying new things. But it's totally okay if you fucking hate those things once you've tried them. I felt like a little bit of a weirdo for not finding joy in the typical teenage things I was supposed to love but I kept the FOMO at bay by doing things that were guaranteed to make me happy. Sorry, telling you that cat. (laughs) (laughs) It feels strange trusting yourself at an age when most people are still telling you what to do, but that's even more of a reason to lean into boundary setting self-care as a personal ritual. You're setting a template that will last for the rest of your life. Loving yourself first is not always about saying no, Emotional boundaries are often more about saying yes to what you want. It was easy for me to forego football games because spending four hours practicing head of sew made me feel good for days. I wanted to be a good seamstress so that I could make all of the outfits that were floating around in my brain, so it made sense to me to spend as much time as possible learning that craft. I didn't know it then, but I was saying yes to something that would sustain me for the rest of my life. The ability to translate my ideas that were in my head into items that existed in the real world. Considering that's how I literally make a living right now, I think it was a good choice. (laughs) When you get in the habit of setting boundaries and loving yourself first, it profoundly affects the direction of your life, simply by forcing you to pay more attention to how things make you feel. You start to notice friendships that are one-sided, or learn how to roll your heart eyes at people who threaten to steal your shine. Emotional vampires take a back seat to the people in your life who elevate you. When I was 18, I figured out that some of the people who were dragging me down the hardest were members of my own family. (laughs) (laughs) Things that had always been fraught between my mother and I, since she left me at my grandparents' house when I was 10 and never came back. But I had never really considered writing her out of my life until I graduated high school. Nothing about our cultural conditioning can prepare you for a life without a mother, either by choice or by force. So it was a strange decision, strange decision to make. But then I realized, trying to have a relationship with my mother makes me feel bad, so I'm not going to do it anymore. I gave myself permission to change my mind, and even kept the door open to her for a long time. But in the end, I didn't need the limited kind of love she offered. I learned how to love myself enough for both of us. The kind of emotional fortitude I get from loving and protecting myself also gives me a sense of confidence about how I move through the world. I trust that I'm always making the best decision about what I need, which takes the edge off of things like quitting jobs or deciding to put off college (laughs) for more than a decade, um, or 12 years, 13 years. That isn't to say that life is always easy. I really struggled for a long time before I was able to cobble together anything resembling a career but leaving my shitty, volatile coffee shop job to be an office assistant was a decidedly good thing, and leaving that office assistant job to work for the United Nations was an even better decision. Every time I left a job, it was for one that would bring me closer to my goals, either by paying me more, or being a better environment with better people in it. Stability, community, and happiness sometimes matter more than your paycheck. Your boundaries will shift like the tide as you move through the world, but your gut feeling will rarely steer you in the wrong direction. You're going to live with yourself for the rest of your life, so love yourself fiercely. (laughs) Um, Uh,
1: Thank you so much to all of our readers, and yeah. like download all of those really good lessons into my mental hard drive right now. Mm-hmm. Um did any did the note card thing work? Did anyone write down any questions? Okay, so now everyone will know that it's yours. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, um, People can also stand and say that. alright. Um, sure. I'm sorry, I totally put you on the spot. Don't there will be a, we'll figure it out. Um, so as I said, we have a special surprise guest today. Um, you may know her from her show, Broad City. Please welcome Abby Jacobson. Um, I didn't see anybody from I was watching. Um, whoa.
3: Figure this out. Um, first of all, congrats, dude. This is so lovely. Thanks. Yeah, it They were all incredible.
1: I'm excited to read the book. I, I am too. Well, I have read it, but yeah. My first response was like, I'm excited too, but I have read it. Um, well, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. How's your? Um, I'm alright. There's situation. no like thing, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind okay. of
3: broken I think I'm good If we <laughs> ignore it, I'll be good
1: <laughs> it's re- Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, Thank you um, um, cool. That'll work for like two seconds Yeah um, Okay, so as I said, this is an ask a groan And I know oh I didn't God. think through, just to reiterate I dropped the ball on the questions <laughs> um, It's okay
3: I, I feel like this is the first moment I'm like Feeling like a groan Oh. No, I'm kidding I'm not usually asked grown questions right so this is this is a big thing for me
1: too oh welcome to adulthood
3: thank you I'm 34 and it's really kicking
1: in <laughs> um I guess I um'll we'll ask this one then
3: is there one que- only one no I
1: don't really- yeah, do you want to just okay. say it? I don't know why. Don't know. So, I'm a senior in high school
2: and I'm here at the end of the year and so this is like the first time I'm really getting that gut feeling of like oh, all of these friends that I've known and loved since I was like, what, in kindergarten? I, in a few months I'm going to be away from them and I really haven't ever had this before because like if my friends have gone to college it's like very nearby an hour away but my best friend that I've had since like the first grade who I love like a sister is going away. and She's going to Boston, and I'm probably going to be staying here in LA to go to college. So I don't really know how, because I'm going to be now in like this kind of more of adult world and college and everything. And how to deal with stuff like that? I don't know, and
3: like, I don't have. Any I'm so excited for you.
2: <laughs> You're so excited. Okay, keep <laughs> going. <No, I'm> sorry. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, any advice on how they keep a relationship like that? Or how to just deal with that feeling of knowing that you have best
3: friends that you're so far away? I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's a big change you're about to go through, um, without a doubt. Just you starting over in a new place and everyone is sort of starting over in different places. Um, There's not a lot of equivalent changes like that in your life. and. I actually, I take that back. The grown-up thing, because my first day in college, I I did feel like, whoa, I am. This is the first day I'm like on my own a little bit, which is a a good thing, um, but a scary thing. Um, I I think it's also cool. I I I didn't grow up in this social media culture you kids (laughs) are in. Even though I like write about it a lot. Um, Facebook came out when I was like a junior in college. So you just, you're more connected now. Um, So I feel like that's just gonna be inherently, you're gonna see what everybody's doing. Um, But also you get to go visit them, which is like, that's awesome. You have a place to stay in every city, wherever they're going. And I'm assuming they'll all come back um, for the holidays, if they can, but I have a lot of friends from, from high school still, do you?
1: Yeah. I think that you also, you, uh, you kind of get a sense of like, because high school can be really social and you get a sense of who you really want to keep close and stay very close friends with when it requires more effort than like you are in class together every day. So
3: it, It's kind of like a funnel, a natural yeah. funnel in an in a, in a organic way. It's like
1: Survivor. <laughs> it's a brutal um, process yes. of elimination. Yes. Every Thanksgiving is yes. another challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not to make it sound mean, but I think it's a good thing, because like, then also those friendships mean more, because you're both putting in more, more work. Yeah, but also, not to go in the future,
3: like future positive, but you're gonna meet Incredible people at college. <clears throat> so are all your high school friends, and then all, you'll like get to meet them, and it's just kind of like branching out in a, in a dope way. Thanks, Abby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I kind
1: of have two questions. Do you using
6: your mic? Not oh, I'm so quiet. Um. <laughs> So I kind of have two questions,
4: but I'll try to be quick and not monopolize all the time. Okay. But um so I'm a senior in college, so it's a little bit different. Um, but I'm about to be completely financially independent and that is terrifying. Um just any kindly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
3: cool. Any financial advice? <laughs> oh, financial advice so like um but anyway,
2: it's, it's, it's scary. <laughs> yes,
3: it is. Um Yeah, I'm trying. I, okay, so I yeah, it's a very scary moment. Um I moved to New York right after I graduated from college, and it was the first time that I was financially independent. And I was I'm very lucky. I come from a uh, like a middle upper upper middle class family in the suburbs of Philly, but so I had like it was like I had like a If anything crazy happens, I was like, I know I'd be okay, but I was totally on my own. Um, And it was terrifying, but I, and there were like, there was like a roller coaster ride uh, of like ups and downs with that where I felt comfortable, and other times where I didn't. I'm actually gonna give you advice um, based on Alana,
0: um,
3: who I make the show with, because she was always so much better. Than I was when we were in like the roller coaster of making Brown City. There were moments where we were like scrounging up, like I at least I was like I'm eating baked potatoes for for a week now, like as every meal, with, because I was like trying to figure it out and trying to you know fig- uh, yeah, it was just all over the place. But Alana always saved. She <laughs> she just like always like. Every check, she had like a methodology of like putting some aside, so that she was always comfortable, and I was sort of always running around with my head chopped off. Um, I recommend her way, <laughs> except my way is more fun to write about. So depends on what you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome.
6: That actually covered my second question because it was like advice for going into the entertainment industry. So.
3: Have more life
4: experience, right? About um, <laughs> it's well, yes,
3: that has been ben- very beneficial for me. But I would also say, if you're thinking of going into the entertainment business or like the creative world, I feel like the biggest thing I would say is to like t- is to look at the people around you and find those uh, people that you like sort of latch onto and, and make those connections and hone in wherever you are. I don't know what exactly you're trying to do, but. That has been the biggest thing for me is finding the other people that I work well with.
4: Thank
3: you so much. You. Financial I Really got lost in that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Hi. So I'm a college
2: freshman right now, so going through all the
3: crazy
2: changes.
6: Uh, I have a question. How do you find your passion? In life? <laughs> 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 These are easy. <laughs>
3: Also, you answer, too? If you want, I don't. I don't want to like. No, it's okay. You're the girl. Okay, yeah. No. yeah the ground, right? um, how do you find your passion? Like, honestly, I think it, it keeps coming. Like, you, mm. if you're lucky, you keep finding new passions. Um, that's what I tell myself every day. But um, and I think it changes. Like, I went. I went to art school. I wanted to be a visual artist. I, I mostly did drawing and painting in college um, and that's not really what I do now but it was like the core passion as I was when I was a kid and I went to college for it and then sort of like it shifted a little bit when I was exposed to video and stuff and um, and then yeah, yeah it's just constantly like you're going to find yourself in like a museum or something you're like holy shit I want it. sorry can I yeah 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 okay, <laughs> okay. but <is> that college <laughs> Hi, Constantly. I'm surprised it's the first time. Um, But yeah, if you're open to everything uh, and if you're lucky, you'll be constantly inspired by stuff that will shift your passion a little bit. And if you're really lucky, you get to combine those passions.
1: Uh, That's the best. I also think, this reminds me of, I can't remember what it was called, but we had something on the site because someone had asked a question that was like, For her specifically, she was like, my parents are really pressuring me to figure out what I love so that I know what to go to college for, etc. And um, Amy Rose Spiegel, who's one of our writers, wrote a really good response where what I remember from it is that she basically says, um, it doesn't help to feel something if you're constantly like, Is this my passion? Am I enjoying this? Am I feeling it yet? Um, Kind of like the episode of SpongeBob where they bring Mr. Krabs around and they're like, are you feeling it now Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it now Mr. Krabs? Um, I think you'll find that in a lot of things in life. Like if you're um, on a date with someone and you're like, is this fun yet? Um, Or you're thinking that then you have your answer. Anyways, I think that uh, there's a lot of pressure obviously around um, especially around college to know what you want to do for the rest of your life Uh, which is bizarre to me because I, I don't know, everyone I know of all ages has had like eight careers and I think that a lot of um it's a little cliche to say like it finds you but I do think that um, the best things are things we can't totally engineer on our own and um, I think uh, if there's any way I know it doesn't help someone relax to just say relax but if there's any way to alleviate the pressure or try things at a very kind of you know um, in a very like safe, creative environment or something, then you could end up being surprised by what you like too. Yeah,
3: and I think when you do come upon it, it'll kind of be undeniable. Like, you'll yeah, know. Yeah,
1: you know. You know. Um, I'm just checking the time. Should we do another one? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
6: Um, I'll take the microphone. Yes. I kind of have two questions mixed together. One is, especially for Toby, you didn't go to college. Yeah. But that's kind of because your career had already started. But um, how did you, I mean,
0: oh, it's
6: problematic. Here, I'll give you this because it's
3: no. right next
6: to
0: oh, the. It's here, inside.
6: what if I hold it? I'll hold oh. it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can just talk. Um, my first question is you know, how I'm a, a senior in high school and I'm trying to oh. figure out. Whether I even want to go to college because I feel really passionate and I feel like college is gonna get in the way, but I also as you are someone that like loves to learn and it loves thinking. So how did you like make that choice? And the other question is, no matter what you choose, how the fuck do you take yourself seriously? And like how do you conquer self doubt if you're very someone that's so introspective and like questioning everything?
1: you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, Yes, because I deal with it all the time. My friend Sarah's laughing at me because I probably text you every day about my self-doubt. Um, um, uh, I, um, well, the college thing, I, you know, I guess it depends on, um, like maybe a, you, you want to take a gap year and just have more time to figure out if like I, I guess it depends. I would have gone to school if it uh was to study something uh that I would learn the best from like being in an academic environment rather than from experience yeah. if you don't have the I don't know, resources or people in your life to be able to have those experiences, an internship or mentors, um, then college is probably where you would find that. Um, I originally was going to take a gap year and then I, while on my gap year, I was like, I already started living alone. A lot of people had told me like, oh, you'll. it's a good way to transition out of living with your parents, I'd already done that. Um, and also, like I said, college is really expensive and I live in New York and living in New York is expensive and it um, it didn't make sense for me at that time, but I would really hesitate to tell a stranger <laughs> what to do about college. Um, but those are some things to consider, maybe. Like, obviously if you want to be a doctor, maybe go to school. <laughs> um, <laughs> But if you want to know.
0: Know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like you can play operation, like you get it. Um, yeah, I think uh uh and also again people I know who have switched careers, even if they went to school for something totally different, that ends up being useful somehow later. Um, how do you trust yourself and believe in yourself? Hmm. Um yeah, that's pretty hard. I think uh, something I think about a lot is something Georgia O'Keefe said, which I'm going to butcher, but she says, she said something like, I've been afraid at every moment of my life, and it never stopped me from doing something I wanted to do. So, yeah. Um, and then you find out, like, John Mayer said that.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> <but> <laughs> <anyway>. uh, <laughs> I don't know, how do you re- 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 trust yourself, believe in yourself? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately,
3: that doesn't totally go away, at least for me. It's like mm. kind of a constant battle, uh, mm-hmm. creatively, and in all areas of my life. But, um, <laughs> Um, creatively at least, I think if you can figure out how to, like, there's always going to be this doubt of, like, your work, I'm just going to, that's how I am, like, process it, but there's going to be this doubt of what you're doing, like, is this good, will people respond to this, um, but I think if you can find a way to like yourself, and like your point of view, and like your sensibility, um, then that can override the doubt, and then you're...
1: You're in the clear. Yeah, if you're just trying to entertain yourself. Yeah, if you can right. find the con- like that confidence and be like, no, way, wait. wait. I, I like
3: what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it is. I'm, I'm. It's like a constant conversation. It's. It's like, a duality.
1: And it comes out of I think taking in. I don't know what kind of thing you want to do specifically, but I think it gets easier if you're if you um are taking in a lot of movies, books, whatever, and you get a better sense of what you do and don't like. And then you don't have to. If you're making something, you don't have to lead with self-doubt mm-hmm. because you've created some kind of taste, and that can be your kind of safety net. But do you ever worry that like it's um,
6: you want to be unique, so you're uh-huh. hoping that you're not just taking from thing, like aesthetics you like, or you want to contribute something unique, you know? Do yeah. like does that something that cross your mind? How do you like deal with that?
1: Oh, totally. Um, I mean, I'm you know, horrified by things I've written where I realize, like, oh, that's, I was totally just, I had that other writer's voice in my head or something. But I also think that, I think you have to go through that. And I also, um, one thing that I find that helps uh, is, um, if, like, if I'm looking at a blank page, the problem I'm trying to solve will be, like, my self-worth <laughs> but if there's some idea yeah. like if there's a story and I'm trying to figure out like how to make something more you know how to raise the stakes if it's fiction or whatever then I think if the the problems can be like within the work that kind of takes the burden off of your own yeah you know, it's not a referendum on like how good an artist you so are. So you just
6: think about the micro rather than like the macro kind of. Yeah, <laughs> while
1: like you're doing it? Well, what I believe it was doctor Duro or maybe John Mayer who said <laughs> that writing is like driving in the dark with only driving in the pitch black with only headlights, where you can only see a little bit of of a little bit in front of you the whole time, but you can make the whole journey that way. Mm, (laughs) Kind of like life. Very good question. Thank you. Um, Well, thank you. Oh yeah, I can't resist. How do you, if you do multiple projects, how do you invest time in each of them without feeling like you're cheating on one? That's a really
3: good question. Um, I find time uh, to be like one of my biggest obstacles. Me too. It, it really is. I'm like always up against, yeah, and you're, you. I'm kind of constantly questioning, oh well this creative energy, am I using it all on this and then I don't have anything on like, I'm out, you know?
4: Yeah.
3: Um, I'm really talking this out before I answer the question. Um, I think it is I mean I actually got to a point recently like how do I do this? I, and I literally like put myself in my office every day for like a week and a half when I need, and I was like, you can't leave. <laughs> like you can't leave until you like I finish this thing, um, I I kind of force it. I have to force it a lot.
1: Yeah, I think that um, like my friends and I will create. You know, we'll give each other deadlines, not even to read each other's stuff, but just so that we're held accountable to someone. But in terms of figuring out how to distribute that energy across different things, um, it's definitely hard. But I also think it's kind of nice to have a few going on at once so that if you're frustrated with one thing you can go to another or if one thing that you're doing hinges a lot on like you know getting approval or permission from other people like acting then I can be like screw you I'm gonna go (laughs) right and they're like we don't care Um, but uh like did
3: you ever have a lot of you guys that are in high school do you have block scheduling? Yes. Yeah. So I didn't and I was always jealous of block scheduling because right. it was like bigger chunks of time, right? Yeah. But then it would like switch throughout the day so you could get, you kind of got, what was the, it was different than regular. Yeah.
1: I didn't have it either.
3: But it was a cool way of, of changing things up where it wasn't, like my classes were like 40, this is insane, my classes were like 45 minutes? Yeah, I'm just That's thinking cool. about that. That is so short. <laughs> as soon as you get into it, you're right. like, bye. I don't know how I made it. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I kind of do block scheduling. When I have a day where I'm working on my own, I'm a big list maker. Uh, I have, like whiteboards, I, have, uh, notebooks with lists, because the most satisfying thing in the world is crossing something off. Yeah, and so. Um, not to, like, take all the creativity out of artwork or writing, whatever, but sometimes it is, um, a lot about scheduling, if you are doing more than one yeah. thing, I mean, that's, I, I, think that, that's kind of essential,
1: yeah, it's for accountability, really hard. yeah, right, uh, it's stressing me out. I mean, I, I know. think about this 23 hours a day. You gotta make these lists. Yeah. I make lists 23 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I have, one thing I've started doing is breaking them into even, like, smaller chunks of time. <laughs> I, st- because I have this feeling of, like, am I working on the thing I should be working on right now? So I'll be like, Okay, 10 minutes of writing that thing, answer one email. Like, wow. really bite sized, um, which also if you have a short attention span, mm-hmm. um, which who doesn't now? Um, yeah. 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 Right? We, we're fine on time. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a
6: freshman in high school and art school. Um, and, uh, like, it's more of a social question once you guys got your start in like something successful
4: that got attention like rookie and fun and like how did you ever feel like a sense of jealousy from your friends and like
6: and they like they kind of, that kind of affected your relationship slightly like you just felt some tension and how did you handle that mm-hmm.
1: that's a good question um for those who didn't hear it was about uh Jealousy from friends if you're kind of doing your own thing or you've created something or accomplished something? Um, yeah, I've
3: definitely felt that. Um, I, I work with a lot of my friends, um, so I'm among people doing the same thing, but uh, even kind of within, even within that, like, being the boss of a thing, even if you're working with your friends, it's like the dynamics shift. Mm-hmm. Um... But in general, I think I always try to put, to like switch the roles, always put myself in their situation and figure out if you're, if, if I'm conscious of it, um, then I can, if I'm conscious of like this tension, then I can kind of act accordingly in a thoughtful way for the feelings that might be hurt, like hurt feelings or jealous or, and again, I'm like, it's it's all it's kind of like a feeling because I'm guessing someone didn't say some I don't know
1: right but different I think if it's if you just sense that you maybe sense your it. friend is feeling envious or if someone is actually you know trying to bring you down um, those are definitely yeah different. so if you sent I always try to like
3: okay what okay what would that feel like um, how can I be sensitive to that I also. Like we're, we're, um, I'm trying to, like the specificity of the situation, um, but um, I think I also try to be really conscious of like sharing the good thing going on, Um, so like bringing them along, kind of if I can, even if it's in little ways, and just know, like letting them know that you're not trying to uh, make that gap larger. It's nothing personal. Um, yeah, it's a, that's a delicate situation.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's all it's hard because it makes you feel responsible. It, it's weird because you shouldn't not do something you love because someone else, you know, for them it calls into question if they're where they want to be. Um, but knowing that it. Is Especially if someone isn't actually being aggressive, but it's just a kind of awkwardness, like knowing that that's where they're coming from and it's not malicious. Uh, and also, like, will probably change in a few months just because people go through, you know, different stages with how they're feeling about themselves. Um, I think
3: that also think, yeah, like, I'm trying to think of when I, I have felt that way. Coming up in comedy, I felt that way a lot when it was like stuff was happening for people, and I was like, Oh, okay. You know, a lot. I was like, Well, all right, <laughs> you go and do the thing. Um, and I was, you know, I I remember what that was like, and it, it it kind of like, thankfully made me kind of focus on my own stuff. But I don't know. I don't know if it's possible, but I, I wonder if it is a really close friend. It's kind of different if it's like. Acquaintances and the community in general, but if it's a really close friend and the tension gets like really like too much to handle, it's not out of this world to kind of softly bring it up. Um, I think it might, because yeah, if they're doing the same thing, you hope that they're gonna do amazing things too.
1: And if you're able to talk about it, that's good because it makes if the tension is really loud and it feel and it's kind of positioning you two against each other if you can be like hey we're on the same team the problem is actually you know that we live in a world where it's like there's only so much to go around or you think that if someone else gets something then you don't get it or like if you can kind of um, yeah make it clear that you're not uh, competition and the What's going on is not, you know, um, uh, it's hard to find the words. And I'm also just being reminded of, you know, dealing with this in various forms. Um, but yeah, I think it can mean a lot to someone just for you to say, like, I see you and I see what you're feeling. Um,
3: uh, I always learn, like, I always feel like I just now that I'm, a, a, that I'm a grown and I try to talk about things more openly. I never, like, you're, you're a freshman in high school? I You guys are nuts. I was not like this. I was like an idiot. Uh, it, it's just so impressive that, you know, I, to be able to confront a, um, a situation like that is like, is very brave. Uh, and I think that if you just, you know, take little baby steps with it. That person, your friend, will be very happy because they get to talk about it too. And right now, not you know, it's just like
1: yeah. And friends, kind of, you grow apart, you find each other again. I think that, like, yeah, again, stages or ebbs and flows. I'm losing the words, <laughs> but Abby's right. Um, <laughs> whatever she said. (laughs) It's late, it's midnight. Um, It's almost 6.30. What do you think about the direction things are going for girls and women? Okay, we're going to be here for four more hours. (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe we can talk about this at the signing table. Um, That was your question? Oh, 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 oh. Let's talk later. Uh, just because I <laughs> know that there are people who want to get
0: home. Um, thank you again so much for coming. Thank you, Ab, and thank you for you. having me. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.